Chapter forty two of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter forty two of a recurrence from As You Like It, and How Fenwick Didn't. Why a Sailor Would Not Learn to Swim. The Baron Again. Of a Cuttlefish and His Squirt. Of the Power of A Priori Reasoning of Sally's confession, and how Fenwick went to a first-class hotel. When Fenwick turned back towards home, ostensibly to shorten Rosalind's visit to the doctor's mother, he had no intention of doing so early enough to allow of his rejoining his companions, however slowly they might walk. Neither did he mean to deprive old Mrs. Vereker of Rosalind until she had had her full allowance of her. In an hour would do, or three-quarters, he discounted twenty-five per cent, owing to a recollection of the green veil and spectacles. Then he felt unkind, and said to himself that after all the old woman couldn't help it. Fenwick felt he was making a great concession in giving up three-quarters of an hour of Rosalind. As soon as he had had enough exercise for the day, and was in a mood to smoke and saunter about idly, he wanted Rosalind badly, and was little disposed to give her up. But the old goody was going away to-morrow, and he would be liberal. He would take a turn along the sea-front, would have time to get down to the jetty, and then would invade the cave of the octopus and extract the prisoner from its tentacles. His intention in forsaking Sally and the doctor was half suspected by the latter, quite clear to himself, and only unperceived by his opaque stepdaughter. As he idled down towards the old fisher-dwellings and the net-huts, he tried to picture the form the declaration would take, and the way it would be received. That this would be favourable he never doubted for a moment, but he recalled the speech of Benedict to Beatrice, "'By my troth I take thee for pity,' and fancied Sally's response might be of the same complexion. His recollection of these words produced a mental recurrence, a distressing and imperfect one, connected with the earlier time he could not reach back to, of the words being used to himself by a girl who ascribed them to Rosalind in As You Like It, and discussion after of their whereabouts in Shakespeare. The indescribable wrench this gave his mind was so painful that he was quite relieved to recall Vereker's opinion that it was always the imperfection of the memory and the effort that gave the pain, not the thing remembered. And in this case there could be no doubt that it was a mere dream for the girl not only took the form of his Rosie he was going back to directly, but actually claimed her name, saying distinctly, Like my namesake, Celia's friend in Shakespeare. Could any clearer proof be given that it was mere brain froth? The man with Bessie and Eleanor tattooed on his arm was enjoying a pipe and mending a net, not to be too idle. The glass might be rising, or not. He was independent of science. A trifle of wind in the night was his verdict, glass or no. The season was drawing nigh to a close now for a bathing resort, as you might say. Come another sennight you wouldn't see a machine down as like as not. But you could never say to a nicety. He'd known every lodging in the old town full, times and again, to the end of September month before now. But this year was going to fall early, and your young lady would lose her swimming. She's a rare lass, too, for the water he concluded, without any consciousness of familiarity in the change of phrase. 
not that I know much myself, touching swimming and the like, for I can't swim myself, never a stroke. That's strange, too, for a seaman, said Fenwick. No, sir, not so strange as you might think it. You ask up and down among we, waterside or seafaring, and you'll find a many have never studied it for the purpose. Many that would make swimmers with a bit of practice will hold off, for the reason I tell you. Overboard in mid-ocean and none to help, and not a spar, would you soonest drown end on, or have to fight for it, like it or no? Drown, the sooner the better. Fenwick has no doubt about the matter. Why, sure, so I say, master, and I've put no encouragement on young Benjamin over yonder to give study to the learning of it for the same reason, and not a stroke can he swim any more than his father. Well, I can't swim myself, so there's three of us, said Fenwick. My daughter swims enough for the lot. It gave him such pleasure to speak thus of Sally boldly, where there need be no exact definition of their kinship. The net-mender pursued the subject with the kind of gravity on him that always comes on a seaman when drowning is under discussion. "'She's a rare un for sure. Never but three, or maybe four, have I seen in my time to come anigh to her, man or woman. The best swimmer a long way I've known, Peter Burtonshaw by name, I helped bring two after drowning. He'd swum, at a guess, the best part of six hours afore we heard the cry of him in our boat.' too late a bit we were but we found him just stone dead like and brought him round it was what peter said of that six hours put me off of letting them learn young benjamin to swim when he was a youngster and when he got to years of understanding i told him my mind and he never put himself to study it fenwick would have liked to go on talking with the fisherman as his mental recurrence about shakespeare had fidgeted him and he found speech a relief but some noisy visitors from the new St. Sennans on the cliff above had made an eruption into the little old fishing-quarter, and the attention of the net-mender was distracted by possibilities of a boat to-day being foisted on their simplicity. It was hardly rough enough to forbid the idea. Fenwick, therefore, sauntered on towards the jetty, but presently turned to go back, as half his time had elapsed. As he repassed the net-mender with a short word or two for valediction, his ear was caught by a loud voice among the party of visitors, who were partly sitting on the beach, partly throwing stones in the water. Something familiar about that voice, surely. "'I cannot throw stones. I am too fat. I shall sit on the beach and see everybody else throw stones. I shall smoke another cigar. Will you have another cigar, Mr. Brown?' "'You will not? Very well. Nor you, Mrs. Brown. Not for the world. Very well. Nor you, Mr. Bilkington. Very well. I shall have fun myself, and you shall throw stones.' And then, as though to remove the slightest doubt about the identity of the speaker, the voice broke into song. Ich hat einen Kameraden, einen besten findst du nicht, but ended on mein guter Kamerad, exclaiming stentorianly, oblige me with a match, and lighting his cigar, in spite of his companion's indignation at the music stopping. Fenwick stood hesitating a moment, in doubt what to do. His inclination was to go straight down the beach to his old friend, whom, of course, you understand, he now remembered quite well, 
and explain the strange circumstances that had rendered their meeting in Switzerland abortive. But then, what would the effect be on his present life, in his relation to Rosalind, and, almost as important, to Sally? Diedrich Kreutzkammer had been for some time in California a most intimate friend. Fenwick had made him the confidant of his marriage and his early life, all that he had since forgotten, and he had it now in his power to recover all this from the past. Strange to say, although he could remember the telling of these things, he could only remember weak, confused snatches of what he told. It was unaccountable, but there, he could not try to unravel that skein now. He must settle, and promptly, whether to speak to the Baron or to run. He was not long in coming to a decision, especially as he saw that hesitation was sure to end in the adoption of the former course, probably the wrong one. He just caught the Baron's last words, a denunciation of the hotel he was stopping at, loud enough to reach the new St. Senans, of which it was the principal constituent, and then walked briskly off. He arrived at Igledon's within the hour he had first conceded to the octopus, and got Rosalind out for a walk, as originally proposed. There was no apparent reason why the impossibility of overtaking Sally and the doctor should be interpreted into an excuse for going in the opposite direction, but each accepted it as such, or as a justification at least. Rosalind had not so distinct a reason as her husband for wishing not to break in upon them, as he had not reported the whole of his last talk with Vereker, but though she did not know that Dr. Conrad had as good as promised to make a clean breast of it before returning to London, she thought nothing was more likely than that he should do so, and resolved to leave the stage clear for the leading parts. She may even have flattered herself that she was showing tact, keeping an unconscious Jerry out of the way, who might else interfere with the stars in their courses in the manner of the tactless. Rosalind suspected this of Sally, that whatever she might think she thought, and whatever parade she made of an even mind no sentiments whatever prevailed in, there was in her inmost heart another Sally, locked in and unconfessed, that had strong views on the subject. And she wanted this Sally to be let out for a spell, or for poor Prosy to be allowed into her cell long enough to speak for himself. Anyhow, this was their last chance here, and she wasn't going to spoil it. She had gone near to making up her mind, after her sufferings from Gwenny's mamma in the morning, to attempt, at any rate, a communication of their joint story to her husband. But it must depend on circumstances and possibilities. She foresaw a long period of resolutions undermined by doubts, decisions rescinded at the last moment, and suddenly revealed ambushes, and perhaps in the end self-reproach for a mismanaged revelation that might have been so much more skilfully done. Never mind, it was all in the day's work. She had borne much, and would bear more. "'How do you know they're all nonsense, Jerry darling?' We catch their conversation in the middle, as they walk along the sands the tide is leaving clear, after accommodating the few morning bathers with every opportunity to get out of their depths. How do you know? Surely the parts that you do seem to remember clearly must be all right, however confused the rest is. Fenwick gives his head the old shake, dashes his hair across his brow and rubs it, then replies, 
the worst of the job is you see that the bits i remember clearest are the greatest gammon what do you make of that rosalind's hand closes on her nettle instance jerry give me an instance and i shall know what you mean fenwick is outrageously confident of the safety of his last imperfect recollection he can trust to its absurdity if he can trust to anything well for instance just now an hour ago i recollected something about a girl who would have it rosalind in as you like it said by my troth i take thee for pity to orlando and all the while it was benedict said it to beatrice in all's well that ends well the hand on the nettle tightens jerry dearest she remonstrates there's nothing in that as salikin says of course it was benedict said it to beatrice yes but the gammon wasn't in that it was in the girl that said it when i tried to think who it was she turned into you i mean she became exactly like you but i'm a woman of forty this was a superb piece of nettle grasping and there was not a tremor in the voice that said it and the handsome face of the speaker was calm if a little pale fenwick noticed nothing like what i should suppose you were as a girl of eighteen or twenty it's perfectly clear how the thing worked it was from something else i seem to recollect her saying like my namesake celia's friend in shakespeare the moment she said that of course the name rosalind made me think you into the business it was quite natural quite natural and when i was a girl that was what i said she had braced herself up in all the resolution of her strong nature to the telling of her secret and his and she thought this was her opportunity she was mistaken for as she stood keeping as it were a heart-quake in abeyance till she should see him begin to understand he replied without the least perceiving her meaning evidently accounting her speech only a variant on if i had been that girl and so forth of course you did sweetheart said he with a laugh in his voice when you were that girl and i expect that girl said it when she was herself whoever she was and the name rosalind turned her into you look at this cuttlefish before he squirts for a moment rosalind fenwick was almost two people so distinctly did the two aspects or conditions of herself strike her mind the one was that of breath drawn freely of a respite a reprieve a heartquake escaped for indeed she had begun to feel as she neared the crisis that the trial might pass her powers of endurance the other of a new terror that the tale perhaps could not be told at all that unassisted by a further revival of her husband's memory it would remain permanently incredible by him with what effect of a half knowledge of the past god only knew the sense of reprieve got the better of the new-born apprehension bid it stand over for a while at least sufficient for the day was the evil thereof meanwhile jerry absolutely unconscious of her emotion and seeming much less disconcerted over this abortive recollection than over previous ones stood gazing down into the clear rock-pool that contained the cuttlefish do come and look at him rosy love said he his manners are detestable but there can be no doubt about the quality of his black she leaned a bit heavily on the arm she took as they left the cuttlefish to his ill-conditioned solitude tired dearest said her husband and she answered just a little 
but his mind was a clean sheet on which his story would have to be written in ink as black as the cuttlefish's Parthian squirt, and in a full round hand without abbreviations, unless it should do something to help itself. Let it rest while she rested and thought. She thought and thought, happy, for all her strain of nerve and mind, on the quiet stretch of sand and outcrop of chalk, slippery with weed, that the ebbing tide would leave safe for them for hours to come. So thinking, and seeing the way in which her husband's reason was entrenched against the facts of his own life, in a citadel defended by human experience at bay, she wavered in her resolution of a few hours since, or rather she saw the impossibility of forcing the position, thinking contentedly that at least if it was so impracticable to her it would be equally so to other agencies, and he might be relied on to remain in the dark. The status quo would be the happiest if it could be preserved. So when, after a two hours' walk through the evening glow and the moonrise, Rosalind came home to Sally's revelation, as we have seen, the slight exception her voice took to universal rejoicing was the barest echo of the tension of her absolutely unsuccessful attempt to get in the thin end of the wedge of an incredible revelation. Quite incredible. So hopeless is the case of a mere crude, unadulterated fact against an irresistible a priori belief in its incredibility. Sally was reserved about details but clear about the outcome of her expedition with Prosy. They perfectly understood each other, and it wasn't anybody else's concern, present companies, of course, excepted. Questioned as to plans for the future, inasmuch as marriage did not seem inconsequent under the circumstances, Sally became enigmatical. The word marriage had not been so much as mentioned. She admitted the existence of the institution, but proposed, now and for the future, to regard it as premature. Wasn't even sure she would tell anybody except Tishy, and perhaps also Henriette Prince, because she was sure to ask, and possibly Karen Brown if she did ask. But she didn't seem at all clear what she was going to say to them, as she objected to the expression, engaged. A thing called it without an antecedent, got materialised, and did duty for something more intelligible. Yes, she would tell Tishy about it, and just those one or two others, but if it was going to make any difference, or there was going to be any fuss, she would just break it off and have done with it. Sentiments of this sort provoked telegraphic interchanges of smile suggestion between her hearers, all through the evening meal that was so unusually late. This lateness received sanction from the fact that Mr. Fenwick would very likely have letters by the morning post, that would oblige him to return to town by the afternoon train. If so, this was his last evening, and clearly nothing mattered. Law and order might be blowed, or hanged. It was, under these circumstances, rather a surprise to his hearers when he said, after smoking half through his first cigar, that he thought he should walk up to the hotel in the new town because he fancied there was a man there he knew. As to his name, he thought it was Pilkington, but he wasn't sure. Taunted with reticence, he said it was nothing but business. As Rosalind could easily conceive that Jerry might not want to introduce all the Pilkingtons he chanced across to his family, she didn't press for explanation. "'He'll very likely call round to see your young man, Chick, when he's done with Pilkington.' 
to which Sally replied, "'Oh, he'll come round here. Told him to.' Which he did at about ten o'clock. But Fenwick had never called at Iggledon's. Neither had he come back to his own home. It was after midnight before his foot was on the stairs, and Sally had retired for the night, telling her mother not to fidget. Jeremiah would be all right. End of chapter 42